We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. This episode of How to Fail is sponsored by L'Occitane and their Immortel Overnight Reset Serum. Their serum is an incredibly popular and acclaimed product. It has won over 21 prestigious beauty industry awards since its launch in 2018. And this September, L'Occitane has launched a powered-up formula containing 10 times more concentrated Imotel essential oil. Imotel is a flower rich in antioxidants and collagen-boosting properties. What more could you want? I was lucky enough to try the serum before its launch and I loved it because it really did leave my skin feeling so hydrated and smelling like a field of wildflowers. I was touched too by the story of Corsican Imotel cultivator Pascal Cherubin. When wildfires threatened her farm and she wanted to give up, L'Occitane supported her to get back on her feet and helped her business to grow. They really do care about their producers. Using 100% organic and fair trade farming methods, Pascal's crops are nourished by natural rainwater and a little organic fertiliser, resulting in only the best ingredients for L'Occitane products. So as you can hear, I love the Imotel Overnight Reset Serum, and I know you will too. It's essentially eight hours sleep in a bottle. L'Occitane has an exclusive offer for listeners, so you too can experience the power of this serum. They are offering listeners a free seven-day sample of its new and improved Imotel Overnight Reset Serum worth £9 when you spend £20 in L'Occitane boutiques nationwide or online at uk.loxitan.com with code HOWTOFAIL, which is valid until the 30th of September. 2021. Thank you very much to L'Occitane. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. For this episode, I bring you a how to fail first. My guest today is the only person I've interviewed so far who has had a ride named after them at Thorpe Park. He's got a fair few other unique accomplishments too, including playing Russian roulette live on television, convincing a series of innocent middle managers to commit an armed robbery, successfully predicting the national lottery and creating a zombie apocalypse for an unsuspecting participant after seemingly ending the world. It's quite a CV. And he is, of course, Darren Brown. Brown was born and raised in Croydon and privately educated at the school where his father was a swimming coach. But Brown was, by his own admission, never athletic and not a cool kid. At Bristol University, where he studied law and German, he went to a hypnosis show and knew that this was what he wanted to do. His 20-year television and stage career, in which he deploys magic, suggestion, psychology, misdirection and showmanship with extraordinary and sometimes controversial results, has made him into a household name. He's also a painter and best-selling author. 
His 2017 book, Happy, explores the idea that it is our reaction to events that causes distress, not the events themselves. And his newest release, A Book of Secrets, considers the value of difficulty in our lives. Life is ambiguous, complex and messy, he writes. We can at least look to meet its unpredictable nature with an open heart. Darren Brown, welcome to How to Fail. Hello. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This is uh, exciting. Oh, it's so exciting for me to have you. And A Book of Secrets, you've just said to me that I'm the first person other than your editor and agent who's read it. So I feel incredibly honoured. I feel incredibly sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let, let me allay your fears because I found it such an incredibly illuminating book. You really do have a philosopher's mind and you wrote it at a very unpredictable time in your own life and in the life of the world, really. So tell us about writing it against the backdrop of a pandemic and moving house, which you were doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I started it when I was in New York doing a Broadway run, one of the last Broadway runs of, of anything, as it turned out, before everything closed down. So it was pre-lockdown, pre-pandemic. And then I imagined I would just write it whilst touring, which is I normally find a very nice time to write. Then the lockdown happened and then the tour didn't happen or has been postponed till September now. So it became my main lockdown activity alongside painting, which I do a lot of as well that you you mentioned. So it's been, on the one hand, an absolute sort of lifesaver. And on the other hand, the book was sort of, and weirdly, this show I'm about to start touring is also about the core idea that when we tend to feel that we've failed or when we're experiencing pain and difficulty, that it's a sort of inevitable central point that we are drawn towards. There's this sort of centripetal quality to life that pulls us to these difficult centres. And although we tend to feel most alone at those times, most isolated, we're actually, because that is the core of human experience, it's like we're experiencing the real weight of life, it's actually the thing that joins us up most with, with other people. It's the time, weirdly, that we're actually most connected. And then, of course, you know, lockdown is a, is a very literal demonstration of that. Here we are both isolated, but also sharing in this sort of extraordinary thing. So both the stage show and the book ended up sort of being fed by the experiences of the last 18 months or whatever it is. So weirdly, that was kind of helpful. It's not a book about lockdown at all, but it is a book about difficulties and and finding places for compassion. There are a couple of ideas explored in your book that I would love to discuss with you. One Mm. is, which I love, the concept that instead of focusing on self-improvement with kind of blinkers on and only accepting good vibes into our lives, we should instead prioritise potentially a better interaction with the people around us, which you've touched on. And I just thought that that was such a delightful way of skewing the balance to concentrate on connection rather than this self-improvement that it's a diet that positive psychology has given us for so many years, isn't it? Yeah, well, part of the problem with self-help, and there's nothing really wrong with self-help, and in a way it's a self-help book that I've written, but with the popular notions of self-help is this idea of self. They're all trying to help a self, that they're sort of defining that quite confidently, that like our self is something that we can really put our finger on, like it's an isolated, clearly defined unit, and it encourages us to think of ourselves like that. But it just sort of isn't the case. Ourselves are very active. You know, we sort of self, you know, it's a verb. We extend out into our relationships and our environment. It's something that's very sort of fluid and, and contingent. I, I, was, I used to notice it with my TV shows a lot because there was a show I did called The Push and it involved whether or not you could, just through social pressure, have somebody commit murder by putting them in a situation where there was this social compliance that was building and building. And anyway, a lot of people said to me, oh, I'd never do that. If it was me, I would never do that. But of course, who you are when you're sat quietly watching a TV show on your own, feeling relatively comfortable, is just not who you are when you're in that situation with all those levels of compliance and all those sort of bizarre levels of things that I sort of built up for Mm. that person going through that experience. So your sense of who you are and your values and everything is just so contingent on your situation. So I've never quite trusted the idea that our self is something that is easy to define, let alone anything that's sort of isolated. I think it exists so much in the relationships that we have and the little in-between spaces between ourselves and the people that we're just trying to understand from day to day. You mentioned your stage work there, and I I think that one of the really interesting things about your stage and TV work is that 
you bring an element of disclosure to it in the sense that you're attacking a lot of mythologizing around things like faith healing or fraudulent psychics. And I I find the idea of faith very interesting in in how you write about it and what you say about it, because I know you grew up an evangelical Christian and you are now an atheist. But in A Book of Secrets, you talk about how the myths can be important around religion for making sense of life. And I suppose I just wanted to ask you a bit about the importance of both sides of that in your work, both in writing and on stage and TV. Yes, yes, yes. So like a lot of magicians, for want of a better word, I have this scepticism towards charlatans and psychic powers and that whole world, partly because we end up with a sort of mindset and and an insight into the techniques of how those things work. And for things like faith healing and spoon bending and stuff like that, it's sort of often quite, it's very easy to sort of put your fingers on those as tricks. Where I think it gets more interesting is in the realm of faith and so on. I was a believer for most of my life. And then around sort of university time, I came out of it. And like most people that are strong believers, I then became a strong atheist because it's easiest to do a sort of 180 degree flip. And then as time's gone on, although I'm still an atheist, I don't believe in any of it, but I think I can certainly appreciate the value of certain aspects of it now. The way I see it is that religion is sort of articulating something that is actually really important to the human experience, which is transcendence. So if you sort of imagine that Maybe something historically happened at some point or somebody existed and taught in a way that gave people that experience at one point in history. And then as time's gone on, that sort of moment has moved out of living memory. So to be recaptured, that happens in the form of dogma and certain practices and and rituals. And whatever knowledge there was or direct experience of it at the time is sort of replaced with belief. And then that becomes institutionalized and you've got the church and then the church becomes powerful and it becomes a monetary and political thing. And very soon you're into a very different world. But it's all, I think, still pointing back to something that is essentially just the importance of transcendence. And all I mean by that is losing ourselves in something that's bigger than us, because that's how we find meaning in life. It doesn't have to be a religious thing or remotely spiritual, or it might be just throwing yourself into your kids being a parent. But the importance of finding something that's bigger than you and then losing yourself in that thing is how we find meaning. And the experience of having meaning is vital. It certainly trumps happiness. The people that choose to end their lives are not normally because they're unhappy, it's because they lack meaning. We can all deal with a certain amount of unhappiness. So meaning is very important. And in throwing out, as a lot of my fellow atheists do, with a certain easy scorn, the world of religion, for all the bad ways it sort of articulates that, I think, human need, there's a certain amount of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I do kind of reserve a sort of respect for that, just that. And it's not anything to do with organised religion, but it is to do with just accepting the importance of that relationship with transcendence. Because if we don't get it right, we put it in all the wrong places. We look for it in fame and money and success and or even happiness you know things that just never quite land in the way we expect them to they're goalposts and horizons that are always sort of shifting further away the closer we get so at some point in our lives i think it's good to look at you know those sorts of issues directly and work out where we can find it i should also say that a book of secrets veers into deeply personal territory and i did find it very moving just on a personal level some of the things that you reveal in there And I wonder if you could tell us about Schopenhauer (laughs) and and the conjunction between events and aims, because I also found that very helpful about how to handle life when it spins out of your control. Yeah, I always think it's important if you are trying to ever teach anything or offer anything you think is important to balance it with sort of vulnerability. Otherwise, you know, it can just seem preachy. I didn't start off imagining I was going to write a very personal book, but it ended up, because of various circumstances over that 18 months, ended up being more personal, which I think was a good thing. So Schopenhauer's idea is something I've found reflected through lots of, actually lots of thinkers' ideas, and it kind of goes back to the Stoics, and the book I wrote, Happy, a few years ago that you mentioned, is principally about Stoicism, but it also sort of underpins much of this book, which is, Schopenhauer had us sort of caught between the twin poles of pain and boredom. He was a big sort of pessimist, famously. But he said, imagine that you've got all the things you want to achieve in life pulling you one way, and then stuff that life is throwing back at you, pulling you the other way. And if you imagine those are the two axes of a graph, 
so the x-axis and the y. What we live is an x equals y diagonal. There's a resultant diagonal where we're sort of being pulled in both directions. And we sort of meander along that line. So sometimes we're in charge and things are going well, and other times life's throwing stuff at us that we just simply can't control and we're not doing so well. And the Stoics, who Schopenhauer, I think, was pulling from, who were Stoics are much earlier, the early Greeks and Romans, their whole philosophy was about making peace with this x equals y sort of diagonal, that what they were called moving in easier accordance with fate and fortune, all these things that we don't really think of much nowadays, let alone have any real respect for. What we tend to think nowadays is that we can crank that x equals y line up into line with our aims and our plans if we set our goals correctly and if we believe in ourselves enough and if we put our wishes out into the universe with enough commitment and all those things. And that can be great. I mean, obviously, you know, a certain amount of optimism and self-belief is important. But the trouble is when things do come crashing down, it's then adding a sense of our own failure onto a list of things that have gone wrong exactly. already. Yeah. And you mentioned you mentioned the faith healers. I noticed it really vividly with the faith healers. When I say faith healers, I mean those kind of evangelical, normally American, although we do have a hilarious and quite apologetic British version of it too. But that thing that hijacks genuine religious faith and turns it into a kind of charlatanism, really. But a common thing you hear there is for people to throw their pills away. So people that are healed, and bear in mind, it's very easy. I did this every night on stage for my whole miracle tour, healing people on stage, is easy. You create a certain amount of adrenaline, which kills pain. You sort of interrupt people's ongoing story of their relationship to whatever ailments they have. And it's very easy, certainly for 10 minutes on stage, if not after that, to have people think they're fine and cured and, and to lose all symptoms. It's, it's sort of extraordinary and fascinating, but it's not difficult to achieve on stage. Anyway, a very common thing is to then say, throw your pills away. You don't need them. If your ailment comes back, it is your fault for not having had enough faith. Mm. And there are horrible stories of people that, of course, you know, most of the time the ailments and the conditions do come back when the adrenaline's worn off and the rest of it. They start blaming themselves. And of course, with that whole world, it's tied in with sending more money, sending more money into these people in order to whatever, be prayed for or whatever it is. But it's a cycle of self-blame that, of course, is only going to go in one direction. It's only going to go downhill. And it's sort of weirdly the same model. And if you read something like The Secret, you know, The Law of Attraction, it sort of says quite specifically that if the universe doesn't provide for you, it's because you haven't committed enough to your beliefs and your goals. You haven't fully emotionally and, you know, you haven't gone out and you haven't built the bigger garage because you've asked the universe for the bigger car. You know, you haven't firmly committed and put everything on the line. It's just silly and it's pointless and it's just not helpful. Much better is to accept the fact, well, maybe you're not going to get a bigger car, but maybe a bigger car doesn't matter and to move, as I said, just in an easier accordance with the fact that life doesn't always turn out the way we want it to. I think it's so helpful for people to hear that because I've definitely been guilty of, you know, trying to manifest things like crazy. And then you're so right. You feel like a failure according to your own self-imposed metric because you're like, well, I'm trying really hard to think positively, but now I'm feeling a bit negative about it because it's not happening. So that in itself isn't helping. And actually... Advice was given to me recently, which is like, just, you need to sit with the void. And I have found that more helpful than any amount of self-help mantras. Sit with the void, because that's where creation comes from. You need that's that great, space. That's great, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, that's very good. Sit with the void. I think there's all sorts of other things that I find helpful. High intention, low expectation. That's very useful. It's a very yeah. stoic move. So what the Stoics said is, and the way that this X equals Y line is best dealt with, is that you only bother controlling the things that you're in control of, because their whole point was to avoid unnecessary frustration and anxiety. And if you try and control things you're not in control of, you will, of course, just make yourself frustrated because you can't change them. So the only things you are in control of are your thoughts and your actions. That's it. That's hard enough, right? But at least those things are kind of within your remit. Everything else, so how things turn out, results in the world, what other people think of you, things like, you know, aspects of your reputation, how others behave and so on. Those things are either not in your control or big chunks of some of those things, aspects of them are not in your control. And you only apply yourselves to the bit that you are in control of. So, for example, your intentions, how much you decide to do your best at something, well, that's under your control. But the result may not be, right? So if you go into a game of tennis thinking you're going to win and your opponent starts to do better than you, you're going to feel anxious. You're not going to play as well. You're going to feel like you're failing. Whereas if you go in thinking I'll play as well as I can, as best as I possibly can, 
then it sort of doesn't matter if your opponent does start to beat you because you're still succeeding in your goals. You'll play better because you'll be less anxious. So high intention, low expectation, and just not trying to control things that are outside of our control. I don't think stoicism is the answer to everything. And in a way, this book, A Book of Secrets, is sort of trying to fill the gaps, I think, that it leaves. But I think it is a helpful thing because all of those techniques of throwing stuff out into the universe is trying to control something that we have no control over. And we're much better off being happy with the fact the universe doesn't care about our plans at all than trying Uh. to manipulate it. There's so much I want to ask you that I'm almost annoyed that I've got to now talk about your three brilliant failures because they, they're so wonderful that I want to give them their due time and I'll try sure. and pepper in all the other questions I have about your stagecraft along the way. Before I start on your failures, one more question. Have mm. you ever been on your own Thought Park ride? Uh, I have. Yes, I have. Gosh. Really, that came out the same year I had the happy book. And it was a strange moment to look at my career and go, oh, I've got a book on Greek philosophy and a ghost train come out in the same <laughs> months. Yes, I have. So it opened a good few years ago. And then it was a weird thing because it was unlike, I don't know, a play or something where you can rehearse it and change it. The nature of something built in concrete and stone and there's a lot of VR involved, which is very, very expensive to go back and change. It meant there were a lot of teething problems that couldn't be dealt with. And then I think a year later, we were able to make a bunch of changes. And now I think it's terrific. But I haven't been on for a while. The last time I went on, there was a kid in front of me. It was before we went in, it was just like there's a waiting room. And there's a there's a Pepper's Ghost illusion of me on a stage talking and just trying to get everyone nervous and this little kid in front of me was really freaking out and got a bit upset and in the end decided to leave and he didn't want to go through on the ride and it was so tempting to make <laughs> things so much worse really. yeah but I, di- I didn't I didn't I can't believe I actually uh, held back but yeah so yes haven't been on for a while but it's, it's good fun okay so coming on to your failures your first failure is a failed driving test And it's a failure that we quite frequently get on this podcast. And it always goes deeper than one might expect. And yours goes very deep. Tell us why you chose this as a failure. I chose it first because it was the only thing I could think of that was a very clear, unequivocal failure. It was definitely something I did and failed at. And it was a fail, as opposed to sort of slightly more kind of subjective things. So I felt I couldn't not include it. So I still don't drive. And it's become more relevant now because I've moved to the country and I kind of do need to drive and my partner's having to do all the driving. So it's sort of now come back as a bit of a thing. But yeah, it was the only thing my parents ever sort of really encouraged me to do. And there was the only time I ever really got any sense of, we really think you should do this, you should learn to drive. And I think maybe partly out of a kind of (laughs) disbelief that they were trying to push me into anything. I I just didn't want to. I had no interest in driving. So I did the lessons, failed the test and went, that was it. I did it. I failed. That was it. And I'd never looked back. I've been very happy not driving. But yeah, it's a definite failure. I don't know what I did that was wrong. But as it got me thinking, I have a history of being quite sort of, it's not exactly obsessive compulsive. It's a little bit like that. But I was very ticky when I was young. I had lots of ticks, although they eventually left as they tend to these things. But I remember there was on Tuesday afternoons, I used to take a, a lady called Dorothy out shopping. And it was part of like a school general studies thing. She lived on the top of quite a steep hill and she was in a wheelchair. So I'd have to take her down the hill in this wheelchair. And I had this compulsive need. And I did this. It wasn't even something that I struggled with, but didn't do. I did actually do this every Tuesday of letting go of the handles of the wheelchair at the top of the hill, closing my eyes and seeing how long I could walk behind her. Still, you know, chatting casually, picking up speed. Before I'd freak out and have to grab hold of the handles. Now, it would only be two seconds. I mean, we're not talking any real length of time, but I mean, clearly, you know, enough. So knowing that I was prone to that sort of thing, I just thought, I can't. I can't be out there driving on the the road. (laughs) But I will be soon. Are you one of, well, that instills fear into the entire nation, (laughs) Darren. Are you one of those people, if you stand at the edge of a very tall building, you get the urge to jump off? I'm much better than I was. Oh, God, the thing for me is like if there's a balcony and like, a you know, balcony with a couple of metal rails sort of things is sitting on the balcony, but facing like inwards, facing the building and then leaning back. So like sort of loop, looping my feet around so I can't fall off and then leaning back. So you're kind of seeing the building and then you're seeing the sky and that sort of thing really kind of brings me out in sweats. I would used to have to do that, but I don't anymore. And I'm sure I wouldn't let go of a wheelchair anymore. 
but yeah, I've always been prone to that sort of thing. And I remember even while I was driving, I don't know about the test, but I remember during my driving lessons, I'd have to do a little thing where I just sort of close my <laughs> to close my eyes for a few seconds as we're driving along. Were you in search of extremity of feeling? I honestly don't know what it is. I mean, the whole sort of ticky thing, I think, is a thing that a lot of kids go through. And there is a kind of tension release thing to it that sort of brings its own reward. But basically, it's just a weird thing that sort of gets into the muscle memory. And I think it was a bit like that. It was a sort of, I know I mustn't do this. Uh, the, the closest thing I've heard sometimes people say, you know, sheepishly, that they sometimes, if on a dual carriageway, struggle with this sort of urge to just swerve into the oncoming traffic, you know, with family in the back and everything. Like it's a weird sort of intrusive thought that obviously is the thin end of a wedge of obsessive compulsive disorder and the rest of it. I think there was a sort of a big wedge of human behavior that, is sort of, I mean, you know, fascinating and it can be debilitating and miserable or can just be sort of the sort of thing we can, we can chuckle yeah. about here. And as a, a self-described ticky kid, yeah, what was school like for you? School wasn't too bad. I think it comes and goes in different situations and I don't remember it being debilitating at school. I remember... I think because I was probably, my mind was occupied with stuff I had to do. And I think that's normally, that's what saves you from it. And eventually your life does change and your thoughts go elsewhere and you realise you just haven't, haven't done it for a long time. But I remember sort of being at a concert in Germany and we've moved far away from driving now, haven't we? But I was at a concert, a classical concert in Germany. It was Alfred Brendel playing the Beethoven piano sonata. So it's, you know, one genius with one piano at the Berlin Philharmonic, this huge cavernous concert hall filled with very serious concert goers and at that point my go-to tick was the loudest sniff <laughs> imaginable and I couldn't do anything about it really I mean if anybody suffers from these things or has suffered from it you'll know the kind of experience it's a very odd thing to try and describe a compulsion and it's sort of impossible to understand when you're that age because you don't really understand what an unconscious compulsion is you sort of know you could stop it but you can't I mean you could stop it in theory but in practice you just can't so I was just doing these intermittent, loud sniffs. God knows what Alfred Brendel was thinking. And by the time it came back after the interval, the whole area around me had cleared out. Everybody had clearly complained and found other places to sit. So I look back on things like that and cringe. I don't remember school being too bad, though. I think I was probably occupied enough in work or whatever to maybe not do it. Because you open a book of secrets with being beaten up by people <laughs> who were at yeah. your school. And you also yeah. wrote in your longer email to me that the failed driving test, the fact that you never were good at driving or never really wanted to do it, you think is connected to the fact that you were never part of the gang. And I'd, I'd love mm. to get more into that. I was never part of the gang. It's a real thing with magicians. So magic is the quickest, most fraudulent route to impressing people. I mean, that's basically what it is at its core. And it's a very common thing amongst magicians that they're sort of kids that didn't feel very impressive. So you learn a shortcut to do that. And most people go through it and then grow out of it and stop. And some of us don't. I was an only child until I was nine. So I grew up playing on my own. And I think that also sticks with you. I think that sort of becomes a mode that you just get very comfortable with. And then at school, I wasn't sporty. My dad was a swimming teacher at the school, so I, it was hard to skive out of games all the time, but I did whenever I could. I wasn't bullied, but I did have, as I described in the book, I had a few moments. There were some kids I ended up just sort of getting stuck with who just didn't like me and I didn't like them. But I don't remember it being bullied. I just remember being intimidated as I got to sixth form. I would do impressions of teachers. I'd draw caricatures of the teachers. And I sort of became a bit of a comedian. I did that thing, which worked. I, that's a, obviously a very common story amongst performers. So, And I was sort of amazed that everybody seemed to grow up. Or well, the other thing that happened was that I got in with the wrong crowd. That's right. So I sort of found my gang at the age of 10, who were the classical music gang. <laughs> Or the Puff Gang, as they were known less charitably by the rest of the school. Once you were in with that lot, there was no chance for you outside that lot. Meanwhile, I had no interest in classical music, and we all hated each other within that group. So that was sort of my general experience, not really having a bunch of friends. So by the time I came to university, I was a kind of attention seeker and just very insecure with the whole thing of just peacefully, ordinarily, you know, coexisting with, with my peers. I look back and find myself really annoying. I'm sure like we all were to one degree or another at that age. So the whole thing of going out and drinking or smoking and all, all of those kind of things, I was just never really part of it. 
I think it's a very common story with the people that do what I do for a living. And I think also those patterns of, you know, if you played on your own when you were a kid, and also most of my 20s, I was kind of just doing my own thing and developing the magic. It sort of settles in as a comfortable, quite introverted sort of place. You know, lockdown's not been too bad for me psychologically. You know, it's a comfortable place to go to. You see, it is never just about the driving test. Thank you so much for mm. elucidating that. And it brings us on to your second failure, which I think is allied to what you've been expressing, which is your failure to show up as yourself in company. Yes, And there's a specific dinner party which you write about in the book Mm. that exemplifies this. Tell us about that particular dinner party. It is dinner parties particularly. So I'm naturally introverted, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with shyness. But unless I happen to have just done a show or something like that where I'm feeling normally feeling great, like like amazing socially, I find something like a dinner party just difficult. I can't really say who it is. I know, I'm um, so annoyed, but I have my theories. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ask you after we stop recording. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll tell you off off record. But to save their own blushes, but there was a very famous sort of American royalty sort of couple that came to see my show on Broadway. And we went out for dinner afterwards and I couldn't quite believe it was all happening but it was sort of lovely and and I was on great form because I'd done the show and they'd just been to see it and they enjoyed it and everything great and then I was invited to their house for Thanksgiving which was extraordinary and then I went and it was really friendly and lovely and informal and I got sat next to the hostess which I was really dreading the whole experience because I knew I would find it difficult. So I asked a friend to join me, so at least I'd have somebody to talk to. I was just not looking forward to it, whilst at the same time couldn't possibly turn down the invitation. And then I found myself sat next to the hostess, which was even more terrifying. And then I just had nothing to say. I had I could not make conversation with this woman. So she ends up talking to the guy that's next to me on the other side, sort of over my head for the whole meal, because I've sort of got my head down, just shoveling turkey into my mouth. And it's excruciating, partly because not only are you sat there in this sort of vug of sort of shame, thinking, oh, I have nothing to say, I shouldn't be here, blah, blah, blah. But also you're aware that it's not coming across as a sort of endearing shyness. It's not signalling, bless him, he's sort of shy and a bit intimidated. This must be weird for him. I'll make sure he feels more comfortable. It's just coming across as disinterest. It's coming across probably as being a bit aloof. I mean, I've done this before. I've met heroes of mine that afterwards have said to whatever mutual friend had introduced us, oh, well, he doesn't like me. That's a shame. <laughs> it's not. I just get very uh, sort of intimidated, I guess. So it's not helped if people aren't very warm themselves. I find if people are good themselves at really sort of making the effort and they are very warm, all this normally goes out the window and it's fine. But most people, I, yeah, I do find it hard. And I, I wrote about it in the book because apparently it's about half of us have this sort of thing. You know, it's not unusual have a kind of it's a sort of social anxiety it's not a severe social anxiety but it is definitely a form that kicks in it was utterly different to how it was when I had dinner with them before and I couldn't relate to that I couldn't go back to that in my head I just couldn't connect with it at all it was just something I I gave a lot of thought to since and I came up with a few thoughts that were helpful for me it still plays on my mind and I think the big thing is is what we tend to feel in those moments did you ever suffer from this at all before I totally I I, I describe myself I sort of invented this term the other day, although maybe it's in use already, as a high-functioning introvert. (laughs) So I'm an introvert who's had to learn how to socialise for various reasons. But I also find it incredibly draining and nerve-wracking a lot of the time. I can't possibly relate to your level of fame and success and talent, but I have done a few how-to-fail live shows in theatres, in big venues. Now, I don't find that draining as an introvert, which is super interesting to me because there's something about the crowd and the fact that they've made the decision to be there that makes them feel on my side, I suppose. And it feels like I can sort of put my tokens into all of these machines at once (laughs) rather than the more draining experience of a dinner party where you have to perform and where you have to converse. I'm intrigued as to what you think the disconnect is there. Why can we do one thing and not the other? Well, I know for me, when I do my show, I feel like this very well-rehearsed and charismatic version of myself, which is very nice to be. 
And that's very different from most of the time if I'm at a dinner party. With, I'm not talking about when it's with people I don't know, obviously not with friends, but there's a conversation happening that I either have nothing to add to or I don't know what they're talking about <laughs> or I don't quite have enough faith in my own convictions to want to speak up and throw some strong opinion into the mix. I'm probably one of life's just sort of listeners, but it's just not very helpful in those situations. So I normally just try and talk to the person next to me, which is fine if they're going to give me something back. But if they're not, they're not quite made like that. And there's no reason why they would be. Then it is difficult. It's just the capacity for a type of shame that creeps in. And I think that you don't really get that on stage, whether it's a stage show or as you're describing a sort of a talk, you're there normally to deliver an idea and that's your job. And it's sort of about that thing that you've got to do. And there may be all sorts of fears of public speaking, which are a slightly different thing. But the solution to the public speaking fear is always to make it about the idea. It just shouldn't be about you. It's about an idea that you're communicating. And so somehow that can really help. Whereas when it is just sort of you at a dinner party thinking you don't quite have anything to contribute, then that thought of the shame thing, I think, gets in there and then just is very hard to budge. The answer, I think, is what I sort of write about in the book, really, and what has stuck with me since is not to see it as a bunch of things that you lack, a bunch of techniques that you're supposed to learn, or a sort of an ability that other people have that you don't. Because that's, at least for me, is a sort of, that's the thought that's going round and round and stopping me from contributing at all. It's first of all realising that you actually have everything in place already, because when you're with your friends, or when you're with people you are comfortable with, it's all there, right? You're probably brilliant with those people. So the resources are there, Everybody at some level is sharing a similar thing, and they're either just, as you say you are, have sort of trained themselves, in most cases at least, just to kind of deal with it, or just suck it up, or just get on with it, or they're just, you know, doing their best, but either way, they're at least just sort of speaking up. So vulnerability, you know, is always very powerful. What I should have done is said... I am so nervous being here sat next to you. It's funny, isn't it? A couple of weeks ago, we were having dinner and I was fine. I'd just done a show and I'm really happy doing the show, but I'm really nervous. How on earth do you do this thing every time you throw a party? You know, whatever, just to simply open up a bit of vulnerability. But of course you don't. You start having these small talk conversations. And the thing about small talk is that it's always about the level that you're presented at, right? So if you're there as a teacher, you're going to get asked about being a teacher. And it's very hard to get out of that level that you're first presented at to actually the human stuff that we all share. And, and I should say the husband of this couple, it's like a superpower with him, how he does it. It's incredibly charismatic. And his thing is to, and he's you know, a very high status character, but he doesn't carry high status, but he's just status is by nature. And what he does, he sticks his arms around you or, you know, sort of puts his arm around a couple of you if you're standing talking, and just starts talking about his, oh, he's probably sort of 80 or so, but about his vulnerabilities, the bits of him that aren't working, the exercises he has to do in the shower, everything that's falling apart, and there's just an absolute human levelling thing about the vulnerabilities and difficulties of being him. There is no small talk about what you do for a living, and it's amazing. It's like a superpower. So that's one thing, isn't it? Just to lean into the vulnerability of the situation. And just to say something nice and not to, um, mm. you know, just to know that it's there already, basically. It's, yeah. It's there. The more opportunities to be human and connect and show compassion for our vulnerability, the better, I say. And I think that's amazing advice. You mentioned avoidance and shame. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think not coming out or at least growing up where your sexuality is a bit of a, an issue as is you're sort of coming to terms with that is a part of it. And I, it's a very old-fashioned trope of the sort of the gay man being the hairdresser or the interior decorator or the fashionista or whatever. But I think where there's a grain of truth in that idea, that sort of hoary old-fashioned idea, is that if you grow up feeling shame about what's going on underneath, like deep down, you get very good at creating dazzling, deflecting surfaces. So all, all of those things are about dazzling surfaces. And magic is a great way of doing that. And I think a few things in my life have been like that. They're all sort of great ways of sort of controlling and deflecting people's attention. Just as what I do for Such a living. Such a fascinating point. I, I'd never thought of that before. And when did you step into your full self as a gay man? Well, late, really. I think I thought it was going to go away. I was also, of course, tied up in the Christian church still and I didn't do any conversion therapy, but I, I was on the fringes of that because a friend was quite involved in it. 
and all that just sort of delays things a little bit. So in terms of like fully kind of going, okay, all right, enough of that. It was late. I was in my thirties. I was in a relationship and thought, well, I don't want this to be like some weird secret that I can't turn up with my partner at events. And it's something that's being sneered at in the papers. So yeah, I think by that age, it just wasn't a big deal. A friend took me out and he came out to me. And I remember he made such a big deal of it. I thought he was going to tell me you know, he had cancer or something. It was this sort of awful, huge news he had to go give me. And I remember thinking, right, that's probably not the way to do it. I mean, it was a way to do it for him, maybe, but I thought it can't be that. So I just tried to make it as light as possible whenever I did it. Because I think the big thing you learn is that no one cares. I mean, that's the big, surprising, liberating thing. It's liberating not because you're sort of, I'm gay. It's not that. It's just, oh, people don't care about the stuff you think is huge and shameful. People just... Is of no interest to people at all. It's, if anything, you know, it's sort of disappointing. I imagined it was going to be like, there was a little article in the paper that I'd sort of, I did this sort of interview, but it was done to sort of, you know, let it sneak out. It's a little thing in the independent that no one read. But I remember going out, leaving my house the next day, and I expected it to be like the last scene of Dead Poets Society. You know, I thought that'd be this. <laughs> just, no one cares. No one cares at all. That's a good thing. You're 50 now. You turned 50 in February. Yeah. How has reaching that age change how you feel about life, if at all? Yes, it has. It has. Well, it's a strange time to turn 50, obviously, with lockdown as well, because it's hard to know what sort of drifting anxieties or feelings of emptiness and so on. Are they to do with middle age? Are they to do with lockdown? Or what is it? But yeah, and again, it's something I write about in the books. It was something that felt quite present. I think there is a shift that's important, which I'm sort of, I guess, leaning into. And moving house has helped as well. It just provides a nice sort of blank slate. Where I think the first half of your life is about staking your claim in the world. It's all about your relationship with the world and going, this is me and chasing after things on the horizon that you never quite reach. But there's a lot of that. And I think what ideally should happen, and it sort of starts to happen naturally, but if you kind of recognize it and go with it, but what's a good thing that starts to happen around middle age is that that dialogue shifts from being your place in the world to just your place within yourself. Mm. If you're still driven by ambition and so on in the second half of life, then that doesn't sit as comfortably as it does in the first. So there are things now that I think are important to sort of just like little sort of questions to sort of lean into. Well, and how you experience time actually is one of those things. So spending time doing things that are, it's a good word, atelic or atelic, not quite sure how to pronounce it, but so telos is the idea of, you know, things having an aim that they're working towards. So things that are atelic have no particular aim. So activities that are just enjoyable in and of themselves, and you're not doing something to defer pleasure to a future point. Those sorts of activities, enjoying things for their own sake, that is an important thing to lean into as you sort of navigate middle age. That's one thing I think is important. If you hadn't absorbed a whole load of propaganda about what you should be doing from everybody else, Jung said that the greatest burden a child has to bear is the unlived life of his parents. Such a great idea. So, you know, we come into the world, it's like we're handed a big broken compass that we then use to navigate. So if it hadn't been for all that, if it hadn't been for these sort of mixed and broken messages that we got that have just given us these sort of clusters of oversensitivity and complexes about this or that, if it hadn't been for any of that, what would we be doing? What are the things that we really should be doing, but we've got like a bit lost along the way? And I think you you find the answers to that by paying attention to things that really give you joy and a richer sort of pleasure and the things that you just sort of feel really right for yourself. And that's another thing that's important, I think, to lean into. And then all of these things should happen gently in a sort of a slow motion kind of way. So it's not about abrupt changes. It's just about bringing then a sense of a kind of maybe a sort of inner congruity back into your relationships as opposed to severing those relationships and having the affair or doing the, all those kind of tropes of middle age. But if you can kind of just dig into those sorts of questions that can give you more of a sense of congruity and bring those back into your world of relationships, because that's, as I said at the beginning, that's the way yourself is, isn't it? It extends out into all those people. Then I think that's a good path. And the other thing, the final thing, which is in a great book by Jonathan Rauch called The Happiness Curve, he makes the point that all the research has shown, and it was economists that have seen this, not the sort of close-up work of psychologists, but the step back and look at big numbers, big data work of economists, that people go through this, there's a sort of a downswing of happiness that does sort of happen around this age, but it always goes back up. There is a big upswing that follows it, and he gives Lisa a lot of reasons as to why that is. But that's another thing. It's just being patient. and It's like adolescence. It's like going through another adolescence. We can all look back on adolescence, and see it in, in one way because we're all on the other side of it and we know that it gets better. 
whereas we're sort of looking towards middle age or we're not normally viewing it so much from the other side. But it is, it's just like another sort of adolescence and you go through it and it gets better. That's a really, it's another just sort of interesting big statistical pattern that even apparently works with apes. Even apes have a sort of middle age swing, downswing and upswing, yeah. I think that's beautifully put. And if you are intending to show up even more as yourself, I think that's a wonderful thing because you are great. So, (laughs) I mean, if this is the true Darren Brown that I'm speaking to now, I think that's a wonderful thing to give the world. Your final failure is about failing on stage, which is super interesting because of what it's taught you. So explain to us why you chose this. Yeah, it's a sort of failure about failures. So it happens a lot. Part of the nature of doing a show where I'm going out and trying to sort of have the upper hand, you know, at night after night means, of course, you know, a lot of the time it goes wrong. I'm dealing with members of the public that, you know, I don't know and I, I don't quite know how it's going to be. It's like doing a play and the other actor has no script. Any number of reasons why things will go wrong. So it's a great crash course in how to deal with failure. And there are things that I've learned from doing that night after night that have been helpful in life. There's also a particular feeling. It's a very naked, horrible feeling on stage. It must be similar to maybe forgetting your lines if you're an actor in a play. But particularly with a sort of world of magic, because I've got a couple of thousand people looking at me that five seconds ago seemed wrapped and friendly and hanging on my every word. And now it just feels like, as I've realised I've done something wrong, that they may not realise yet, but I've realised it's all gone wrong, that they are seeing through me, they can see I'm just a fraud and I shouldn't be out there and I've messed it up and I've wasted their money and all those all those things. It's a very uh, horrible place to be, which isn't normally quite that strong in real life when we mess up. I had this experience that sort of taught me a lot about it and it was during this Broadway run and there was a trick that was quite a long piece in the first half of the show. It's like a good sort of 15 minutes or so. And there were four people up on stage, and I'm going to do this thing with each of them. But if I mess up at the beginning, if I'm careless and I slip up, then it's sort of messed up the entire trick. So short of just stopping and starting again, it's going to be 15 minutes of things with these four people that have come up. Each one of them is simply going to fail one after another over a course of you know a big chunk of time. So the first time it happened, I was berating myself. I realised the mistake that I made, so the audience don't know, nobody else knows. And I'm inviting these people one at a time to come forward And I know I'm hurtling towards four failures and I'm sort of going through the script now, but my mind is not in what I'm saying. I'm just sort of thinking, is there any way out of this? Is there any reason on earth why I could stop and start again? I'm trying to solve it, can't find any solution. And I just have to hit four failures. And the last one's like a really big, really big build up to the climax and just, you know, a fourth, a fourth failure. So it was horrible and I was sweating and all inside, you know, sort of panicking. No way out of it. Big failure. So I sort of sent the people back and I kind of apologised and sort of, you know, laughed it off and tried not to do all the bad things like blame it on the audience or blame it on someone that had come up. And then there's just a gag that I would always make that would come maybe like a minute later. And I got to that gag and everybody laughed in the same way. And you become very attuned to sort of, you know, how the audience are responding to things. And of course, that meant that they just hadn't cared. Mm. They were in exactly the same place a minute later that they were every night. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's a great relief. They didn't mind too much. The next night, I made the same mistake in the same place. And I had to go through exactly the same thing. I had no way out of it, but it didn't feel as bad because I knew that the night before this had happened. And I did the same thing the night after. So three nights in a row, it was really inexcusable. I make the same mistake. But by the end of it, I was narrating my sort of panic to the audience. It wasn't quite, I wasn't really experiencing this panic anymore, but I was just sort of enjoying it and letting them in on it. I was thinking, well, this is great because from their point of view, they're seeing the night we went, it didn't work. He failed. He messed something up. It's potentially quite an exciting feeling in the audience as long as, you know, there's not too much of that. And I was really kind of sort of enjoying it and and sort of playing with it a bit. The next night, the fourth night, it didn't go wrong. I've never made the mistakes since. But I remember being in the wings thinking, so it's like a little bit of tension that you have as any sort of magician where however much you enjoy the relationship with the audience, you're still trying to fool them and it can spin on a dime as to when it can go to that frightening, horrible place. But now it's like that steam had been let out of that, that bit of pressure had gone. And I thought, well, what would it be then if I just loved the audience? If I decided that I would just completely just love them, what would that change? If I didn't have in reserve this sort of potentially odd, hostile thing of I'm trying to get one up of them, I'm trying to fool them, if that's now gone... For me, it really changed the show because it meant I could go out and those, again, those ideas that I'm communicating, I could properly focus on 
Like this is mm. important stuff I want to get across as opposed to thinking about, you know, myself. So all that really helped. It really helped me think about how little people care about those sorts of failures compared to what our internal experience of them is. I had done a show years before where I asked people to make videos of themselves talking about any fears they have. And a guy called Nick had sent in a tape of him talking about his crippling social anxiety that he has. And it was absolutely fascinating because he was talking about himself like the world hates him and finds him embarrassing. And he was talking about it with such openness and total vulnerability that you just loved him. Everybody watched this and we just all fell in love with this guy. Well, we obviously have to have him on the show because he's just, he's amazing. So again, your internal experience of how excruciating this thing is, there's no relation to what's going on on the outside. And it's... It's connection, isn't it? It goes back to what we were saying. It's all the obvious things about it's not the failure, it's how you deal with it. But that thing of acknowledging it and just sort of laughing it off and just owning up to it and realising that it's in itself, the thing going wrong, the failure, it's only the story that we give it. It's a bit like going back again to the gay thing, like who they want to sleep with is of no interest to anybody. What is of interest is when someone's trying to hide something like that. And it's sort of like clear, like that's interesting because now you've got a human being struggling, trying to hide something like that has interest, but not the thing itself. And also, of course, you fail in a show and then the next night you've got to go out and do the same show again. So it's pointless lingering over it. You go, okay, what was that? Why did that go wrong? okay, let's sort it out for the next night. Not in my case, because I got it wrong three times in a row, but sometimes they're just very practical things that you can sort out. So it teaches you not to linger and sort of berate yourself or berate other people, because sometimes, you know, in a show, it might be someone else's fault that something hasn't worked. You know, they didn't put a prop in the right place. and so It's so interesting hearing you talk about it, because the more that I talk to people about failure and the more that I do this kind of work, the more I believe that failure is a way of stripping back pretense and enabling us to drop those masks and to have that shared moment of vulnerability. And actually, as you say, one of the worst things you can do for yourself, let alone for anyone else, is to try and hide it and be dishonest about it. I mean, I read this quote that you gave about, it was hilarious, that you're honest about being dishonest (laughs) in terms of your stage shows, which is, you know, which sort of goes to the root of all of that. Well, I think there's a fundamental tension in social life that we generally see the best parts of other people, like people that we meet at those dinner parties or talk to or whatever, we generally present our best sides to other people. So we're seeing normally the veneer that somebody chooses to show us, but we're comparing that to what we know about ourselves, which is our inner life, which contains all those things that are embarrassing and ugly and clumsy and stupid and blah 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 so like from the get-go it's like a almost like a category error you know we're making a mistake we're comparing two things that shouldn't be compared so that's our starting point and that's why i think any sort of show of vulnerability you know we just want to know that our pains and our suffering is shared by somebody else all the stuff that psychics say you know the sort of horoscopes that we read and you can play the game of reading somebody a horoscope that isn't their sign and then they'll often think oh my god that's so accurate but you, you know you purposely read them the wrong one but what's fascinating to me is I used to just think, oh, you know, these things are stupid and I should debunk them because they're misleading people. But actually, there's something really interesting about the fact that we do share so much in these pains and insecurities and failures and so on, that something like a cheap old horoscope can feel like it's amazingly accurate to pretty much anybody that reads it. Or a psychic can throw out, you know, a bunch of information to an audience and so many people will put their hand up and go, yes, you know, that's me. Again, this idea that we're all sharing in the same kind of suffering at some level, I think it's really important. And then, of course, if all you've grown up with is Instagram, then you've got the opposite of that. You know, Instagram is presenting this curated theatre of triumph. You know, you're presenting your life as something that's immaculate. And then again, imagine you're young and then you're comparing your internal experience of your life with that from other people. I mean, it's just adding... (laughs) adding to the potential misery anymore. And there's a lot of lovely things about Instagram and social media too, but I do think there is that fundamental disconnect. And I think when you see a performer, you just want to connect with a human being, even if that's one of the reasons why magic, I think, is, and why I've tried to take it to a more grown-up place, is that if you if you can do anything, if you can click your fingers and make anything happen, there's no drama in that. I had conversations with my friend Teller of Penn and Teller about this. He says, you're playing God if you do that. And God's never interesting in drama. It's the hero that's interesting, who has to struggle and therefore may fail and so on. It's heroes that are interesting, not gods. I'm sort of laughing hearing you talk, not because what you're saying is ridiculous (laughs) ridiculous or absurd, but because it's almost like you're taking phrases from my own head. 
like phrases that I have written in the past. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's true. Darren Brown is a mind reader. But no, but you're you're so in tune with everything that I think around this. And it's just so wonderful to hear it so eloquently expressed. But I would love to ask you, I'd like to end on a more general question because I have been a long time admirer of and follower of your work. And I remember vividly watching you play Russian roulette on TV, watching the armed robbery TV. I I went to see you on stage. Like I remember these things as really key events in my life. And I wanted to ask you what you seek from it. Is it to show something can be done? And do you get delight from that? Or are you always seeking to teach us something when you come up with these ideas? First of all, thank you for coming and doing all that and seeing the shows and everything. It's lovely. But I, when I started, it was definitely to impress. I mean, that's the bottom line of any magic trick is look at me, aren't I clever? You know, that's unfortunately is where it starts, which is fine. And fine again, like in the first half of your life, you know, these are all the sort of things that we do to one degree or another. But as I've grown up, I think I, I would have stopped doing it. I would have grown out of it in my 30s, at least, I think, if it wasn't for the fact my career had taken off. And I felt like I need to do something with it. It'd be silly just to walk away from it because it feels a bit childish. So the TV shifted to a different area. It became about real people going through real life situations that I was pulling the strings in the background for. So again, that was about trying to find proper drama again. So a hero, a real person going through it, not me. Then that became just a very enjoyable world to sort of work in, very, very enjoyable setting those things up. So that was it for a while. I think it was just an enjoyable new mode of working. I love being on stage. It just takes care of this show-offy side of me, which I think I'd miss. Maybe I wouldn't anymore, but it certainly like, it just felt like when it's something now I do well and I enjoy, I love being out on the road for months. All of that is just a really enjoyable rhythm to me. And now it's drifted into, I suppose, are there things I can do with it as I've grown up? Are there things I can bring to it that remain interesting to me? So it struck me only a few years ago that magic is a great analogy for how we interpret the world. You know, so if you see a magic trick, the magician is sort of making you edit the story of what's happened or edit reality to form a story and then mistake that story for the truth. So this is, of course, what happens every day. There is an infinite data source coming at us. So we have to edit and delete and make up a story to navigate that and make sense of what's going on. Then, of course, we mistake it for the truth. And the thing about magic is it makes us stop and go, well, there must be other stuff going on that has not entered our story. It's very good at doing that, giving you that feeling. And we forget the importance of that all the time. You know, the thing about stories is that they're told around campfires in a clearing and you've got all this dark forest that's out of the picture and then this cozy, warm, snug campfire in the middle. And all that stuff that's excluded, all the monsters live in the dark. You know, that's all the stuff that needs to be somehow acknowledged. So now I'm trying to use something that's essentially quite a childish attention-seeking medium to do something more interesting with it. And that's not always easy. So therefore it kind of remains interesting and then it sort of remains enjoyable. I wouldn't say I would use it to teach because I think that sounds a bit wrong and would be preachy and all the rest of it. It's an enjoyable thing. I love the feeling of doing it. I love being up on stage. TV, I could probably happily let go, but I like doing it on stage. And like writing, like book writing, it's an interesting way of communicating ideas that as I grow up are interesting to me. Darren Brown, I'm so grateful for your magic showmanship and your philosophical inquiry. And thank you so, so much for coming on this podcast and really opening our eyes and our minds. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very, very much. Oh, you're so lovely. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's a really lovely thing to talk through and explore. So thank you. This episode of How to Fail is sponsored by L'Occitane and their Immortel Overnight Reset Serum. Their serum is an incredibly popular and acclaimed product. It has won over 21 prestigious beauty industry awards since its launch in 2018. And this September, L'Occitane has launched a powered up formula containing 10 times more concentrated Imotel essential oil. Imotel is a flower rich in antioxidants and collagen boosting properties. What more could you want? I was lucky enough to try the serum before its launch and I loved it because it really did leave my skin feeling so hydrated and smelling like a field of wildflowers. 
I was touched too by the story of Corsican Imotel cultivator Pascal Cherubin. When wildfires threatened her farm and she wanted to give up, L'Occitane supported her to get back on her feet and helped her business to grow. They really do care about their producers. Using 100% organic and fair trade farming methods, Pascal's crops are nourished by natural rainwater and a little organic fertiliser, resulting in only the best ingredients for L'Occitane products. So as you can hear, I love the Imotel Overnight Reset Serum, and I know you will too. It's essentially eight hours sleep in a bottle. L'Occitane has an exclusive offer for listeners, so you too can experience the power of this serum. They are offering listeners a free seven-day sample of its new and improved Imotel Overnight Reset Serum worth £9 when you spend £20 in L'Occitane boutiques nationwide or online at uk.loxitan.com with code HOWTOFAIL, which is valid until the 30th of September 2021. Thank you very much to L'Occitan. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.